Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 29, the one about standing out on LinkedIn, online presentations and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back for more tech news content and wisdom from the world of marketing. Joining me as always is a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the marketing and finance podcast and the host of the Roger Log video series. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much. And it's a great pleasure to be joined by a man who's also on a mission to demystify digital marketing, the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. I give you Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much for the introduction. Roger, this is episode 29, a fine prime number, if you don't mind me saying so. <laughs> and the one before 30. <laughs> yes. So, by the way, just quickly, we've got some lovely message um, of, you know, well done and thank yous, primarily from David David Kilkelly, who had a bit of a shout out about a week or so ago on YouTube. But you also got a lovely message from Andrew Davis on LinkedIn, didn't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it makes it well worthwhile doing the creator shout outs when people take the trouble just to reply and, and and say thank you it's it's just part of the the whole thing that makes two geeks in a marketing podcast just a pleasure to do yeah absolutely so we know that you know still people are going through a tough time you know there's the weather there's the global pandemic there's just the ups and downs of life and business so we're going to do our very best to give you a bit of light entertainment things to think about and things to chuckle about as well so well without further ado in two three one let's move on to in the news Shopify is joining forces with Facebook to make it easier for merchants operating their own Shopify-powered businesses to sell across Facebook and Instagram. Well, according to a recent analysis by IPG Media Brands, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube lagged behind TikTok and Reddit at moderating harmful content during the second half of 2020. News Showcase is the name of the latest Google app now available in the UK, giving you access to curated content from over 120 publications, including Reuters and the Financial Times, the News Statement and The Telegraph. Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, shared at the virtual Goldman Sachs Technology and Internet Conference that the company is exploring ways for its users to receive tips or online payments from their followers. The New York Times has reported that Facebook is working on a competitor to audio social network Clubhouse. Interestingly, Twitter already has one called Twitter Spaces, which is now available to just 3,000 people. Well, workers in five European countries, including the UK, now expect to work from home until June of this year, with more than half hoping to work remotely for about two days a week in the future. Data from LinkedIn shows demand for marketers with an understanding of paid social media has grown by 116% since last year with Instagram, the top platform. And finally, the internet is still talking about how lawyer Rod Ponton was briefly turned into a kitten thanks to a Zoom face filter during a live court hearing in Texas. The sentence, I'm not a cat, is still trending. <laughs> I love that last one, being a cat lover, as you would expect. Mm. Do you know, I mean, in a way, let, let's begin with that, that last one. Um, it's kind of been, you know, the, the sign of the times, the entire year of essentially mistakes and mishaps over the internet. 
Yeah, and we, there's the famous newsreader, isn't there, on Zoom, having a Zoom call, having an interview on primetime TV, and the door bursts open and his kids come running in. <laughs> but it's quite nice as well, isn't it, don't you think? I think so. I think it's it's allowed people to, or forced people to be just more human and to have a sense of humor. Although I think it's tricky in, in the legal context to try and obviously deliver maybe a sentence or to try and obviously defend maybe somebody. And for and it didn't last very long, but it was probably still 60 seconds very long for the poor man. Yeah, absolutely right. So Pascal, this whole clubhouse cloning that's already going on, um, Interestingly, you say that Twitter has got their own, and it's called Twitter Spaces. Now, funnily enough, I was going through the app the other day on my iPhone, and I noticed at the top that one of the little circles that is usually a Twitter story had a big purple ring round it. So I clicked on it, and, and it was a lady called Madeline Scalar. She's a bit of a Twitter expert. And lo and behold, it was one of these clubhouse clone rooms the twitter spaces so i went into it and there was about 30 people in there and they were having a chat and it, it effectively just looked exactly like clubhouse right so i, I don't know whether whether spaces came before clubhouse or vice versa but it looks very much the same but interestingly enough they were talking about will twitter spaces when it eventually goes out beyond more than three thousand people become more popular than the phenomenally popular clubhouse so far and madeline was saying do you know one of the big problems that twitter has now and that facebook has now is that they are tarnished to a certain degree they've had data issues you know there's there's been trouble with trolling on there it can become quite you know there's a lot of bullying unfortunately happens on both twitter and facebook and she's saying that at the moment, Clubhouse has yet to be tainted by anything like that. That's not to say it won't be, unfortunately, but at the moment it isn't. And therefore, that could be its advantage in being able to resist Facebook and Twitter from effectively coming along and trying to steal share from them. I think for me, the, the, the other thing that uh, kind of comes to mind is that trait that we have as human beings to really, really go for novelty. Mm -hmm. and, and I wonder whether you know uh, this Facebook attempt to, to essentially you know do a clubhouse clone or Twitter Spaces actually had such a limited re release that it was uh, of no significance to anyone. I wonder whether people just like the novelty factor of going to a different destination altogether to do something very very different because there is no history, there is no kind of uh, habit. Uh, in terms of audio networking with Facebook, Twitter, or all the others. And, and I wonder whether it's what people like to say, do you know what, I, I have what I do on Twitter, I do my own things on Facebook, but I do something very different on Clubhouse, and I like the multiplicity, the diversity of different apps on my phone, as opposed to just having a handful that will do everything. Yeah, and again, I keep coming back to the fact that, you know, do Twitter and Facebook really need to copy Clubhouse? Can they not just stick to their knitting and be known for something? Now, again, Twitter has always been, to me, one of the best social media platforms because it's that sharp, short ability to express yourself. And why, why add stories? Why add a Clubhouse clone? Just stick to what you're good at. Be very good at it. But hey, it just seems to me that a lot of the time today, everybody just wants to be exactly the same as everybody else. 
Yeah, it makes you wonder whether, you know, don't, don't they have people to come up with new ideas, you know, yeah. <laughs> of themselves? I mean, I just realized for, as I was reflecting on the new he- news headlines that it's been very, very kind of social media centric and it's almost a signs of what's happening right now, you know, in terms of uh, w- what's already in the news and what people are thinking about. I mean, when you think about, for example, the LinkedIn report about this idea of paid social media as a, as a discipline has um, mm. grown by 160 16%. I think it's interesting because for a long time, many of my customers had little to no interest in advertising, whatever it was. And now we're saying that people are changing their, their minds because I realized that you have to find different ways to reach your audience. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and I'm one of these people that always says, you know, go where your customers are. And you'll know that certain people will be on Snapchat, certain people will be on Instagram. And the reason that they're on different platforms is that those platforms will appeal to them for a specific reason. It will actually get harder, I think, to target people on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, if all of these platforms start to be exactly the same. Because what will it be that makes one person choose to be on Twitter as opposed to Clubhouse if effectively they're all doing the same thing? So, yeah similarity breeds mediocrity to a certain extent i think that's a very very good statement and let me just close this uh, in the news review with um, remote working so Mm. across so many industries working from home was obviously frowned upon and then literally people had to uh, for the better part of most of 2020 if not um, already you know 2021 this idea of you know working two days a week in the future from home to for a number of many reasons one of it could be actually quality of uh, being able to concentrate on work as opposed to being in the office where there's all the hustle and bustle and so on but also the impact on the environment the impact on family time and so on and so forth i feel that this is something that um, most industries and sectors should look into seriously yeah absolutely and i i see it quite a lot of the in the big corporates that i work with that they've realized how much money they've saved this year by not having to heat the offices and by not having to keep the offices open and not having to have people travel so much. You know, I I was talking to one company the other day whose travel budget for 2020 was 25% of the previous years. And they've actually said to their staff, do you know what? Even when things come back to normal, we're going to keep our travel budget at 25% because We've proved to ourselves this year that we don't need to travel. Now, I I understand that, and I think that the environmental implications of less travel are fantastic, but that could also have a knock-on effect a knock-on effect to live events and with the best will in the world, I still like going to live events so I can hang out with my friends have a few beers or a few glasses of wine with my friends and network. And I hope we never lose that. So, yeah, use that 25% of the travel budget to maintain that sort of status quo, I think. Now, Vaif, quickly, you are, as you mentioned a moment ago, a keen Twitter user. Do you see a point where at some stage you might want to invite people to give you a tip or form of payment on Twitter? It has never, ever crossed my mind. (laughs) Uh, Pascal. Um, Having said that, uh, I I am doing a bit of an experiment at the moment. Um, I've never ever um, charged people to listen to my podcast. And and in fact, 
it's just not not the done thing. I can't think of anybody who charges for people to listen to their podcast unless it's like a BBC thing that you you get with your license fee or something like that. Um, and I've never really gone for sponsorship of of my podcast, even though I've been offered it a few times because I, I just genuinely don't want to subject my viewers to those really annoying adverts where oh I'm just going to ha- have a break now to talk about VPN uh, blah 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 and this is why you should use it and this is how much it costs and all of that sort of thing. People just get annoyed by that sort of thing. But that means that I don't make any money directly from the podcast. Um, Yes, I get business from it because people listen to what I talk about. But I have been trying out this new website recently called buy me a coffee um it's a bit like patreon i think but it's it, it's just a little bit less obvious and, and and as you would expect it allows people to buy you a coffee simply by deciding to give you a quid or two quid or five quid or something like that and i'm just trying it out now just to see how many coffees i get bought and at the moment it's not been that many i have to say <laughs> do you know I, I like the idea of someone um, essentially showing and expressing their, their gratitude and thanks with, with a tip uh, and and make that just as an option that is almost globally available where i'm struggling is whether or not you will charge people to access your marketing content i'm, I'm having real difficulty with, with the logic there um, so, well, let's wait and see. Jack Dorsey discussed it at the conference recently, and um, we can only, you know, wait to in terms of what they're going to do in terms of announcing it and, re- and rolling it out across, you know, the, the different accounts and so on. What I, what I will say very quickly, back to Twitter Spaces and, and generally what those platforms do, they take just too long to release anything, and they only do it to a small, you know, kind of privileged group of individuals. And that always kind of rubs me the wrong way. And I'm not going to talk about LinkedIn video, a live video anymore. But, you know, it just feels like, why? You know, what is the um, the logic be- behind a limited release to just a handful of people that uh, some of us don't even know? Yeah, and, and let's, let's be Let's be honest here. It, it's always the same group <laughs> yes. of American marketing gurus, isn't it, that seem to get access to these things well beyond, well before the rest of the world. Uh, and now I, I'm, I'm maybe sounding a bit bitter here, and that's probably because I am. <laughs> but I mean, I'm not. I've not got any axe to grind with these people. They are extremely successful, but. There are more people within the in the world who are doing and putting together great content. So come on Twitter and Facebook and all of you social media platforms. If you've got something new to put out there, why not put it out to different people and see how we get on with it first, rather than just chucking it at the, the usual suspects. Oh, well, well well said, Roger. Now, thank you again for listening to our reflection and reaction to In The News. We're going to continue with uh, some discussion within In Content Spotlights. So this is probably one of my favorite segments because really, really go into in-depth conversation and reaction to an article, to a webcast, to a podcast, indeed, sometime even just an ebook. So, Roger, what have you got for us this week? Right, Pascal. This week, we're going to talk about LinkedIn. Uh, so more social media, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, th- this this article um, 
is usually the sort of article that I would probably pass by, but I just liked the way that the headline and the introductory paragraph were written, and it sort of sucked me into the rest of it. So it's called Seven Steps for Standing Out on LinkedIn, which you must admit is your pretty run-of-the-mill. <laughs> you know, I've seen a million articles with a heading very much like that, whether it's about LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it might be. It's always seven steps to do something or to stand out on something, isn't it? Um, it's written by uh, a journalist called Rosie Purr, which is the second reference to cats that we've had in the podcast today. And it's uh, it's in entrepreneur.com, the, the, the website. Now, again, I, I, the first sentence of the article is, LinkedIn is finally growing out of its Jurassic Park phase. <laughs> now, w- with an opening sentence like that, you just have to read a bit more, don't you? And uh, I'm just going to read the next paragraph. And From a deserted social media network inhabited by eager job seekers and lurking, do you have 15 minutes for a call type of salesperson? The platform is finally shaping up with new features like LinkedIn Stories, a sleeker interface, which is less dinosaurish, and an exponentially growing number of content creators waking up amid a sea of shiny corporate ads disguised as posts 2021 will be packed with action and and that really sets the scene for the rest of the article now it says there are seven tips i'm not going to go into those seven tips what i want to go into is the three types of pillar content that rosie suggests that you should put onto linkedin in order to be successful and the reason i wanted to to bring these up is that I still think that there's, a, that there's this sort of um, there's, there's a LinkedIn police force, if you like, of self-appointed moderators on LinkedIn who have this LinkedIn is a professional platform type of vibe going on and and you'll get called out if you post a funny post or if you post a picture of a cat you know it's a professional platform and therefore it's got to be about work or it's got to be about business now I actually don't buy into that I think that some of the best stuff that's going on about on LinkedIn at the moment actually mixes a little bit of business with a little bit of personal stuff and maybe a little bit of behind the scenes and that's been my view for quite a while and this article effectively sums that up and says yes this is the way to be successful on LinkedIn so overall it says like any platform if you want to stand out on LinkedIn you're going to have to be a little bit controversial in what you post so maybe me having a bit of a rant before about twitter only giving the new stuff to the american marketing gurus is the sort of thing you might put on linkedin if you wanted to provoke a response but the three the three pieces of pillar content that rosie suggests you do is first of all number one insights again not 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 rocket science no she's saying crisp updated professional tips on how you can target specific parts of your community it doesn't have to be long essays you know pages and pages of stuff just no practical bite-sized tips that people can consume pretty much instantly uh, and and i love that sort of thing and then here we go second piece of um 
particular content is personal stories. Now, you've heard me tell the story about how I went into a management meeting in a remote country house and listened to a, uh, a man spout management speak mumbo jumbo whilst wearing a pinstripe suit. That's a personal story which reveals why I have an aversion to complication in, in marketing, complication in language. And that's the sort of personal story that absolutely works a treat on LinkedIn. And then number three, and possibly the most controversial, is the entertaining post. And this is where she's saying, you know, it's actually all right to post a cat video or you down on the beach playing in the snow or something from time to time, as long as you're also doing it with the insights and the personal stories as well, and maybe even behind the scenes. And the other stuff is you is what you would expect. Do it, do it with video, sometimes do it with text only, sometimes do it with pictures. Now, as a result of reading this article, I actually went into LinkedIn and looked at some of my favorite profiles content creators who have had shout outs on this show so people like the aforementioned david kilkelly um, and jan ambrose is another person and if you look at what they're doing whether they're doing it on purpose or by accident these people are posting insights they're posting personal stories and they're being entertaining. So uh, that's why I like this article. Not not, not a massive revelation, but just actually bang on when you actually look at it and then go and compare it to what's actually happening on LinkedIn itself. And you know what what is interesting about uh, this article you've chosen, the reminder, I I do believe that this year could be a very good year for LinkedIn. They, They had a great 2020 because of uh, obviously the element of recruitment and advertising and so on. But when it comes to the networking, because so many professionals were at home, as we mentioned a moment ago, they became more active on LinkedIn. And you know the old adage, you know, Roger, you know, you get where you get back where you put in. And and I think people still realize, hang on a minute, this LinkedIn thing that I've been neglecting for a while is not so bad after all. Because I will say that by and large compared to other platforms like Facebook, you know, Twitter, Instagram and, and many others, there was a lack of activity. What I mean by that is a lack of effort in creating valuable content, as you've summarized a moment ago. And I think last year just made people realize that it was important to look after your personal brain. It was important to keep things refreshed, but also was important to have the um, the system, as you mentioned a moment ago, of almost organizing your thinking around the content type. And we have seen more, what I would call, because I think the term entertaining is a tricky one. You know, It can mm-hmm. conjure up so many different things. For me, I, I, I would say you have to be witty um, mm. on, on LinkedIn, and you can you can afford to essentially talk about the trip on the beach and and put something that has a slant, because actually in the world of of business, particularly if you think some of the publication that you and I used to read, you know, back in the days of printed media, there was always those pages of witty, entertaining content. Sometimes they were cartoons, like almost like comic strips, and so. What I will say is that to get someone to smile, chuckle, and laugh was always part of business communication. But you're right. I think people have uh, taken a view on LinkedIn that's been maybe to one extreme. And I wonder if last year has allowed those um, you know, sharp edges to, to come to be smoothed out a bit more. 
Yeah, I think you've actually absolutely hit the nail on the head there. Uh, the enforced lockdown across the world has <laughs> has finally allowed LinkedIn to m- mature and and maybe shaken off the image that it's had of being that professional. Uh, stuffy network and maybe the people who were perpetuating that myth have either woken up and grown up or have just left left the um, platform and gone somewhere else but I actually quite like LinkedIn at the moment it's it's not a bad platform at all yeah I mean I've had some great interaction and and, in the context of a global pandemic when I've been stuck at home it's been a source of really joy for me to see the reaction to have some uh, running commentaries and and people saying hi and so on, so so it's great, great, great uh, choice. Well, I must confess uh, once again rather perplexed as to the selection of news and content spotlight. Once again, we don't really talk to each other, but I've chosen something that is again um, targeting and questioning the um, contribution of social media platform as well as search engines. So the title is in two halves. Um, of, it's an article that actually a friend of the show, Chris Ducker, helped me uh, spot. It was uh, written by uh, Tobia, Tobias, I beg your pardon, Elwood, the chairman of the Defence Select Committee for the Mail on Sunday. And the title, as I mentioned, is in two halves. First half, why the world would be a better place without Facebook, Google and Amazon. Second half, and Britain could lead the way in cutting them down to size. Now, here's the context for you, Roger. For a few years now, you know, like everybody else, I've been torn between the idea of digital and particularly the many platforms we mentioned so far having a really positive impact in, in one's business success. But on one hand, I see, for example, how Facebook, you know, can help you sell more within another platform and the other how little they are doing to protect young people from abuse on the other hand i can see you know what twitter can do with regard to you know helping you engage an audience and the other i can see how little they do in curbing down harmful content there's this constant you know dichotomy between the benefits which i see are really quite obvious from a business point of view but some of the negative impact in social life in general and I've been torn, and you know, I've had many discussions about it, you know, wondering how do we progress this? How do we, those who perhaps spend a lot of time on this platform, those who those who have had experience, you know, how do we move this forward? Now, this article written um, explores really this idea of, is it time to tame the Wild West of the World Wide Web? And what the article is questioning is, you know, is it time, as we've done uh, as as societies many times before, is it time to dismantle the um, essentially upcoming monopoly of the likes of Facebook, Google, and Amazon, as we've done with oil and gas companies, as we've done with airlines, railway, telephone, broadband, where there is a multitude of choices, you know, you could argue in those kind of industries, but the choices are now becoming less and less, um, you know, case in point we mentioned that facebook wants to do a clone of clubhouse your reaction to mine was leave clubhouse alone it's fine we want diversity and choices so this this kind of discussion that this article is uh, is bringing up and is also kind of questioning how much longer will people governments and more allow those companies access to obviously our data and obviously for profit and how long can we allow them to be 
allegedly a participant in the the wealth of a country but actually treating the obligation to pay tax as optional so i just thought it was an interesting article because it was reaching a point where i've been thinking about this a lot and I think that bear in mind what's happening in Australia. Do you remember we mentioned that in the news, Roger? That that kind of minor kerfuffle between um, Google News, as the um, the brand would would be, and the Australian government. We know the many many clashes uh, in the U.S. with Congress and those um, platforms, and we know that the EU is putting uh, things in place to find them for any form of um, you know bad behaviour. So for me, my question to you is. What would a regulated you know, world where Facebook, Google, and Amazon um, being more accountable look like, and what can we do moving forward to make those platforms just a better participant to you know, the, the well-being and wealth of uh, the different nations around the world? Yeah, I, oh, this, I mean, this is a <laughs> long topic, isn't it? I don't really know where to start. I think that there are three things in my head which these massive mega global companies are currently getting wrong. First of all is their misuse of data. And, and you know, on the one hand, we all worry about give, losing our identities and losing our data. And, you know, there's a lot of people who, oh, I, I, didn't, I don't want, I don't like the government's test and trace system because it's like Big Brother watching. But yet, most of the time, we're more than happy to allow Facebook and Apple to spy on us through our phones. Um, so there's a misuse of data there. The second one is their, um, their control of, um, bullying or trolling or, or just nasty content i just don't think they've done enough of that mm. they've, they've they've let far too much political stuff and racist racist stuff and 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 you know, almost like warmongering stuff to a certain anti-vaxxing and all of that sort of thing and then the third thing is the tax um the tax angle which as somebody who has just filled in and my tax return and you know um the tax return as you know is is a year back so i had a relatively decent year 2019 to 2020 and i suddenly find myself with a a fairly sizable tax bill which i've got to pay now in it, in when i've actually just had a pretty bad year in terms of business because of um, of covid now what it means is that the next time i do a tax return it'll be lower but at the moment i think oh do you know times are hard and yet i've got this fairly sizable tax bill to pay and then you read about amazon and jeff bezos and all of that making billions and billions and billions and yet they've structured their company so that they pay the minimal tax within the United Kingdom and, and, and elsewhere. Now, on the one hand, you could argue, well, governments have allowed tax rules to exist. They're not breaking the law. They've just done something within the law to minimise the amount of tax that they pay. But it still feels a bit wrong, doesn't it? Even though I don't, they're not genuinely evading tax they're just avoiding it and there is a there is a uh, subtle difference there so yes i think i would like to see some sort of regulation that comes in and i've heard uh, the chancellor rishi sunak talking about sort of an online sales tax when i see the word online sales tax i can't 
help but sigh and just imagine that it'll be passed on to us, the customer, as opposed to genuinely coming out of the coffers of Amazon. So I'm sort of all for it, Pascal, but some sometimes when governments get involved in regulations such as this, it sometimes backfires and it's the customer that ends up taking the hit as opposed to the companies that they're actually going after. And I think if I look back at the again the second half of that title, Britain can lead the way in cutting them down to size. I think this some it's almost like you know an inkling of the solution here, which is that instead of having to deal with um, Google headquarters in in the US, for example, they have to have a um, legal entity, let's say in France and Germany and then the UK. And from that moment on, they will abide by the rules uh, of trading and and the the law for for that particular nation. And I think they will start to maybe uh, simplify a number of things. But also, if you think about what they've done with regard to broadband provision in the UK in particular, we don't have the sole provider that is BT. Whilst you know they may have done an enormous amount of investment in infrastructure, the 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 number uh, of options available to most businesses and households is quite significant. So again, can we be in a situation where Amazon could have maybe the the depot, but other distributors? can have a go if that makes any sense and why would you know for example um facebook only have the deal with shopify all other platforms should have the deal so i think this, this is where we're going to get to i think a healthier a healthier position because the, the more this tension between let's say the business benefits and really the lack of benefits from the short point of view the more there's going to be that tension and things are going to start to pull that rope is going to break eventually and and we may see actually a time where a whole you know population will walk away from those platforms because some actually some something simpler and actually much more uh, ethical comes along well i mean all the way through the pandemic i've tried to buy local um, and, but you and I have had this conversation. I think um, a while back you bought a piece of kit that you've been looking forward to buying for a while, and you did the same thing. You tried to buy it local, and you got appalling service I out did, of that yeah. company, mm-hmm. and you, therefore you ended up going and buying that piece of kit from Amazon. Now, yes, Amazon could be in danger of putting smaller businesses out of business. But if those smaller businesses aren't prepared to step up to the mark and give amazing service, then to a certain extent, they are at fault as well. And and Amazon shouldn't be penalised for offering really good service. But I think they should be held to account for tax avoidance to the levels that they are. Well, as you said, Roger, this is a biggie. You know, we're not going yes. to solve it, just the two of us and in the context of this podcast. But I would love to hear from you, viewers and listeners, about what does a world where regulation is in place for those platforms to, let's, let's put it frankly, behave better and more ethically? What does it look like to you? And do let us know, get in touch, and we'll make sure to read out those comments for you. But Roger... It's time to find a way to make the life of content producers a little easier. Let's move on to marketing tech and apps. Let's do it. Now, I know that this segment is one of Roger's favorites. Looking at ways, as I mentioned a moment ago, to make your life easier as a content producer and a marketer. So, Roger, what have you got for us this week? 
This week is a bit of a success on YouTube focus. Um, for anybody putting together videos that are wanting to grow an audience on YouTube. Now, I currently use an app which I think we've um, featured on the show before. It's called TubeBuddy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that TubeBuddy does is it helps you to identify keywords which you can tag into your descriptions and tag into your tag boxes on YouTube to tell YouTube effectively what your video is about and, and hopefully get it seen by more people. And obviously the more people that see your video and the more people that like the videos ultimately they may subscribe to your channel and you might start to grow and now I've been using TubeBuddy probably for about a year now and I've followed all of their advice and they've got loads of videos on YouTube that you can watch as to how to research the keywords and and, and try to have the right number of tags in your videos and they you know they, they even rank each keyword from bad to excellent um and what I found on TubeBuddy is that I can find a, a keyword which ranks as excellent and all sorts of different variations that ranks as excellent. And then I upload the video and I can tell from the analytics that it isn't the keywords that are actually driving traffic to that video. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, I don't understand you know, TubeBuddy and putting so much store by this this tag business, what's going on? And then there are other times when I've done the same and it absolutely is the keywords that are driving the traffic. So I think I think I've I've got a lot more to to try to understand here. So I've what I've been doing recently is just trying out a few other ways of determining keywords. And I came across this one called Keyword Keyword Tool Dominator, which is fab, isn't it? It's almost mm. like a terminator of key, of keywords. <laughs> the Keyword Tool Dominator. Now, it, it's it's free to the extent that you're allowed to do. I think it's two or three searches a day for free, and then after that, it stops you, and you you would have to pay a fee in order to do it. But what I've found is that, you know, looking for keywords on YouTube and um, using this tool and looking for keywords on YouTube using TubeBuddy and using other ones, which maybe I'll, I'll bring in in later episodes of the show, not, not all of these tools agree on the same keywords. And that possibly might explain while, why some of my TubeBuddy keywords have been successful and others haven't. And that just makes you think there are all sorts of different apps which claim to understand the algorithm within a platform like YouTube. But I imagine that in reality what they're doing is that they're making some pretty well-informed guesses, but all all the same, they don't know what the algorithm within YouTube is absolutely 100% doing. And therefore there is going to be an, L- an error factor. So I think that it's worth having a look at different ones. And I quite like this one. Not only has it got it a really cool name, but I like the way the website's set out and the way it ranks everything and the insights that it gives you. So that was the first one. The second one is more of a convenience thing. And I know that content creators like convenience. Now, when I put together a, a, one of my YouTube videos, on the whole, I don't have an intro, intro um, sort of like a, title sequence sometimes it comes up rog vlog and i I freeze the screen and i put a a, 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 a white line around my my, uh, 
face and fade it to to black and white. And for my marketing made simple videos, I might do a collage of images of business people and just put marketing made simple over it. So it's it's just basically a title card, I guess. I came across a few websites where you can actually create intros for your videos. And the one that caught my attention this week is called Intro Maker. Great name. Um, it's it's from a company called Ivato, which also do stock footage and stock photographs and this, that, and the other. But this is uh, similar in, in the way that it looks to Canva, I guess, but it's specially designed for video intros. And you can choose the length, you can choose templates, you can drop in your own video clips, you can drop in your own photographs, and it just sorts out the graphics for you. And some of the intros, 10 seconds, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, that sort of thing. So if you want to do something to make your your video have a title sequence that grabs people's attention, but you don't want to manipulate all the images yourself and find graphics, Intro Maker is well worth looking because it's got lots of free templates. Again, there are ones you can pay for, but even the free ones look pretty good. And it's just something to play with. And, and you never know, you might find something which unlike TubeBuddy and its keywords, might just grab somebody's attention and make them subscribe to your video. Super. I love the way you've chosen um, success on YouTube as a theme. Can't wait to see and hear what you're going to come up with you know, for the next few episodes. But I think you're right. The This idea of a, not just making, obviously, life a little easier for yourself, but being relevant and showing that you put the, the work in. The more I think about this, the more I conclude that first impressions are still vastly, vastly important. You know, Are you giving the impression, rightly so, that you have indeed put the, uh, effort and energy behind it or are you just doing content marketing as a task you can't wait to be rid of it so yeah. it's almost with that in mind that i've gone for the theme of being in a position to provide and design better webinars almost inspired by my content spotlight of a couple of weeks ago with um you know our friend from on 24 webinar mark bornstein and I'm even more convinced now than ever before, although it was always something that I knew, that the choice of photography, the way in which you choose to design your slides, um, is going to be important this year because we are approaching this kind of incredible sad anniversary of a year in lockdown or some form of restrictions where you know having to access information and the, the advice and wisdom of people via a Zoom call, Teams, or any form of webinar platform has been has been the norm. And I think it's really becoming quite important to design that experience. And back to um, our friend Mark Mark Bornstein from On24, he made a comment a few weeks ago. He was saying, you know, your role as the, the host or the deliverer of the message is to transport your audience somewhere else for the duration of the webinar. And with that in mind, he was arguing that look at the photography, think of using video almost as transitions to the different subject you want to talk about. Watch out for the copy. I think, you know, more and more now people have gone back, I found, to writing a lot more words than they should and so on. And I think when it comes to photography, I wanted to recommend today two platforms that can help you find different style of photography. I know in the past, Roger, we mentioned Pexels and Pixabay and a few others like Unsplash and Indeed Canva. 
that. But I think you need to be careful. If you use those platforms, can I please advise you to not use the first photos you find on page one? <laughs> because as you can hear from Roger's laughter, they're now becoming quite, quite popular on the internet, aren't they? Absolutely. It just made me laugh because um, I, I use for my for music on um, my videos, I use Epidemic Sound. Mm. Again, we've shouted that out before. And I was watching one of my old videos from about three years ago, and I used a piece of music in that video. And r quite recently, somebody has used that piece of music, quite obviously from Epidemic Sound, and they're obviously paying for it, but they've used it in an advert that comes up on YouTube pretty much every single time I click on a video these days. And I'm hearing the piece of music that I had in a video, and I thought, hold on a second, that's my piece. But of course, everybody can choose these pieces. So as, as you said, Pascal, Dig deep, go into page 10 yes. or search, search a bit deeper into the subject and, and pick a photograph or a piece of music further down the list. That'll guarantee or at least make sure that less people are using it. Absolutely. So the first one is a um, Creative Commons photo search engine. So Creative Commons is, um, I think, is reasonably well known. It's that almost um, universal way in which photos are marked, whereby they are available freely. And occasionally you may have to obviously give the um, photographer credit, but very often they're not. And the address, which you will see on the, on the notes, uh, is freephotos.cc, the CC being the Creative Commons. And again, Again, as someone that searched photography extensively, I have found this um, photo search engine to provide very, very different results. There's some photos I've never seen before. Similarly, you mentioned Shopify in the um, in the new segment. Well, they have also launched their own free stock photo platform, essentially to support obviously those who use Shopify to sell products and services but I, I will say because of their background as you imagine in in one of the number one e-commerce platforms the photography is really quite stunning and again very very different it can be a um, specific of a product but also it can just be used as a backdrop so if you go on to burst.shopify.com again you're going to be accessing I think lesser known uh, photography so less likely to kind of be spotted saying, oh, I've seen this before. But also you might be invited to be just a bit more daring about your backdrop or, or the, the background of the slides to once again, for a moment in time, transport your audience somewhere else. These are great suggestions, Pascal. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add them to my list because as you would expect, my first port of call for photographs for my presentations is usually Pexels, Pixabay or Unsplash, as you've already said. <laughs> so yeah, let's, let's go into something a little bit more obscure so that we can stand out a bit more. And there's one of the advantage of being a, a follower of Two Geeks and Marketing podcasts. You'll be able to find and discover new things like this ahead of the competition and you need your peers. Now, Monsieur Edwards, all yes. this is possible thanks to inventors and pioneers from the recent past. Shall we move on to this week in history? Let's go. 
1878, the first telephone book is issued in New Haven, Connecticut by the New Haven Telephone Company. A copy was sold at auction in 2008 for over $170,000. Well, in 1940, Gone with the Wind receives 13 nominations and win eight Oscars, including Best Direction and Best Editing at the Academy Award. It was also the first color movie to win an award for Best Picture. In 1953, Cambridge University scientists James D. Watson and Francis H.C. Crick announced that they have determined the double helix structure of DNA, the molecule containing human genes. But a year later, 1954, the first colour TV set using the NTSC standard are offered for sale to the general public. NTSC is a standard used in most of North and South America, Japan and a few other places in the world. In 1962, John Glenn becomes the first American to orbit the Earth aboard Friendship 7. Glenn orbited the Earth three times in four hours, 55 minutes, using an IBM 7030 stretch supercomputer. Well, in 1991, English computer scientist Tim Berners-Lee introduces World Wide Web, the first web browser and WYSIWYG HTML editor to research institution whilst employed at CERN near Geneva. In 1995, news platform and search engine Yahoo is incorporated. The company actually began a year earlier as Jerry and David's Guide to the World Wide Web. Well, in 1997, Keith Campbell, Ian Walnut and colleagues at the Roslyn Institute in Scotland, together with the biotech company PPL Therapeutics, announced they have successfully cloned an adult sheep they called Dolly. Wow. Wow. 97. Yes. I remember the it's, story vividly, but uh, I'd just forgotten when it was. Some of the some some of these news items really shock me <laughs> as to how long ago they were. The one that the one that stands out for me today is this whole idea of NTSC, the television standard in America, um, as opposed to the standard that we have in UK and Europe, which is PAL PAL. Now I'm pretty sure that it doesn't make as much difference these days because we're all using digital TVs. But it was something to do with the, the, the frequency of the transmission and also the number of lines that there were on the screen. But I can remember, and this can't be that long ago, but in the early days of the X-Files, I think it was the end of Series 3 of the X-Files, it was a massive, massive cliffhanger at the end of the series. And in America, they got to see the next episode months in advance of the UK. And my sister, who lives in America, in, in, in Los Angeles, videotaped the episode in America onto a VHS tape and sent me the tape. But of course, I plugged, pushed the tape into my machine in the UK, which is a PAL machine. And because the video was recorded on an NTSC transmission, it wouldn't play. So I had to take it to a specialist video shop <laughs> who charged me about 30 quid to convert this VHS NTSC video into a VHS PAL video just so I could watch this episode so that that's what uh, sprung to mind there was it was bloody inconvenient <laughs> 
And I have a similar memory because in France we had yet a different system to PAL right. or NTSC. It was CCAM, S-E-C-A-M. Uh -huh. So if, for example, as I um, still am, I was a, um, used to be a, a major Prince fan in my teenage years, if we ordered a video cassette of a concert, Prince concert from the US, it would take forever to arrive anyway. But then we had to find someone who had a compatible player VHS, you know, cassette player, or like you spend money to get it converted into into a CCAM. So, of course, then I moved to the uh, UK in '91. Take with me my collection of print VHS cassette, and then if I was to play any VHS cassette from France, all I would get was black and white. You wouldn't play in color in the UK. <laughs> I never even knew that there was a a third standard <laughs> of TV. Crikey! I, yeah, again. Two geeks and a marketing pa uh, podcast. Pascal. You learn something. I was going to say two geeks and a marketing Pascal. Then you learn something new every day. Now, would you have gone uh, orbited around the Earth with the IBM seventy thirty stretch supercomputer, or would you have waited a few more years for the technology to improve? Do you know what the IBM seventy thirty stretch supercomputer sounds like? Something that Douglas Adams would have come up with, doesn't it? <laughs> it reminds me of the Bambleweenie fifty seven submesian brain. Um, the, the 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 short answer is probably not. Um, but the other thing that again, my mind's making weird connections today. John Glenn. When people say the word John Glenn, I don't think of the astronaut. I think of a director who directed probably about five of the James Bond films. Of course. I can't remember, I can't remember which one. I think it was For Your Eyes Only Until the Two, and I think he did the two Timothy Dalton ones. But yeah, John, I think it, and it was John Glenn with one N instead of two Ns. But yeah, John Glenn to me is a James Bond film director, not an astronaut. Sorry, yeah, John Glenn. That's quite all right. Yahoo. I will confess, Roger, been a big, big fan of Yahoo. I used to be a big, big, you know, user uh, on a regular basis until they started to lose their way a bit because they did have a great service. You know, they had email. They even had the early version of a social network called Yahoo 360, where you could invite, obviously, friends and family to connect on a um, blog. So they had all sort of things. But what is it, do you think, that they got wrong? Because they really lost market share quite rapidly. Do you know, it's, it is, because I can remember my very first um, email um, with BT was, I think, called BT Yahoo at the time. Um, and yeah, Yahoo with the exclamation mark was, I used to use that before before Google took over. I, I just don't know when whatever it was that went wrong started to go wrong. But whatever happened, it they did seem to fall out of the, uh, they just seemed to fall off the face of the earth quite quickly whenever what it was happened. I wonder, I mean, I know that Google smartly invested a lot in business products, which I think, yeah. you know, has played a big part in their success. But I, I think, I wonder whether Yahoo tried too hard to be that kind of news and entertainment portal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And had they spent more money on, you know, being a search engine with uh, good products, they you know, may have worked better. I will say, I wasn't aware that it started life as Jerry and David's Guide to the World Wide Web. I almost prefer that name to, to Yahoo. <laughs> Jerry and David sound like um, film stars as well, don't mm. they? You know, it sounds like it should, be a, should have been a film about Jerry and, and David's Guide to the World Wide Web. <laughs> oh, excellent. Well, to our listeners, let us know 
what was your very first search engine? And indeed, you know, what did you do when you were able to go on the internet thanks to the invention by Tim, Sir Tim Berners-Lee now, because of course he's become a Sir since 1991. Uh, I'm not going to ask you about Gone with the Wind because I know we've got a, a big chunky part in film marketing. But um, I will, you know, express my surprise. I had no idea that the um, double helix structure of DNA was discovered in '53. That feels such a long time ago, somehow. It, it does. It does. I mean, again, a lot of these moments in history, it shocks me how long ago it was. I mean, Gone with the Wind, which, frankly, I don't give a damn about. To be honest, not one of my favourite films. But even that, my goodness, eighty years ago. I just don't. I just don't know where the time goes. Excellent. So, thanks again for you know allowing us to reminisce and share childhood stories. But uh, time to give others a bit of a shout out. Let's move on to the creator shout outs. So in this segment, Roger and I gave a content creator bringing so much value to their community a bit of a shout out. So, Roger, who is on the spotlight today? My uh, shout-out this week is for uh, a journalist and broadcaster and author and podcaster by the name of Iona Bain. Now, Iona works um, predominantly on financial issues, um, but she's built up a big following in the UK over the last four or five years by starting a blog with a great title. It's called The Young Money Blog. So she's really blogging about finances and blogging about money but focusing on millennials and generation z and that sort of thing and why i like what iona does is as you know i'm a massive fan of keeping things simple and financial services can be really complicated and iona's got a great way of putting it into language that people can understand now she's already also written a book and i think she's got another book coming out but the reason for the shout out today is that, and this is a shout out for a piece of content that is yet to be launched. So that might be a first uh, for the show. But I, I got really excited when I saw this today. Now, Iona's father is also a very well known financial journalist. He's called Simon Bain. And he's been writing um, in publications for well over 30 years. And what they announced today is that they are launching a joint father and daughter podcast, and it's going to be called the Own It podcast. And I've followed Simon's work over the years, and I've followed um, the rise of Iona over the last few years. And indeed, I've um, worked with Iona in um, on uh, at various conferences, and she's been on my own podcast as well, Marketing and Finance Podcast. So I was really quite excited to see what they're going to come up with as father and daughter, and they're they're just going to riff on money topics. But I can I can just imagine that the, the you know the, the the generational differences that Iona focuses on younger people and Simon has got the worldwide experience and, and the wisdom I think it's going to be a really interesting dynamic so it's a shout out for a program that has yet to be launched but I think it's definitely worth having a look because these are two very experienced and very exciting broadcasters so the own it podcast with Iona and Simon Bain coming soon 
Ah, superb selection. Thank you so much, Roger. So today, I would like to actually perhaps give somebody a second shout-out, a lady called Nicole Osborne. She was featured as part of a duet where she worked with um, Tiana wilson by on trying out some uh, live uh, story, live sessions on Instagram. But the reason I wanted to give, give Nicole a uh, perhaps a second shout-out is because not only is she creating amazing content, as I mentioned a moment ago, but she's recently rebranded and recently refined her offering, I suppose as a result of using last year as moments to reflect and just reconnect with you know what she wants to do and what a positive impact she wants to make and to which audience. So she's now recently become the founder of Wunderstars. Now, some of you will know that Nicole is a German national and she brings a lot of that culture into her delivery. And she's now officially the marketing coach for digital agencies and she has launched as a result a new video series you're going to find the link uh, on the show notes and for me roger the reason why i wanted to kind of give nicole the shout out is both in terms of wishing her the very best of luck and i don't think she needs much luck she's so talented with regard to wonder stars and all the different products that comes of that but also to let others know that um, if you want inspiration around you know rethinking recentering refocusing focusing your efforts into a more precise audience, then this could be the case that is you've been you've been waiting for. So in terms of the, the video um that she's been launching she's now very very busy giving lots of value so these are you know very detailed videos you have things like the best ways to build your network on linkedin but addressing the needs of web designers and other digital companies how to find web design leads on social personal branding for agency founders and so on and so forth so i just love the clarity of thinking i just love the clarity of the audience and within that, I can only imagine that her content and her business will go from strength to strength. So here you are. Nicole Osborne is the second content creator to give a shout out today. Oh, this is fantastic. And yeah, Nicole is awesome. She's she's one of my favorite content creators. Um, notable that last year, because of lockdown, there were several conferences that we were probably both going to, Pascal, which we knew that Nicole would have been at. And, and one of the highlights of going to conferences was always being able to catch up with Nicole in person. And it's been a shame that we've not been able to do that. Uh, I was slightly sad when she um, said goodbye to her lollipop social which was the brand she had before Wonderstars. Mm -hmm. But things move on, and Wonderstars sounds just as exciting as Lollipop Social did. So I will add my uh, good wishes to the success of Wonderstars and Nicole Osborne. Well done. Yeah, absolutely. Super. Now, Roger, I would <laughs> like you and our audience to get comfortable just get into that comfy seat, grab a cup of coffee. If you have them, grab your popcorns. It's time for film marketing. Yes. Right, Roger. In 2018, there is a movie that probably had one of the simplest and one of the most straightforward marketing campaign and yet became one of the most successful movies of that year and i'm talking about three billboards outside of ebbing missouri now that is not the sort of name of a film that gets you sitting up bolt upright thinking wow i'm gonna have to get out and buy a ticket for that i mean three billboards outside of ebbing missouri wow i mean 
It's not Star Wars or Terminator or Die Hard, is it? It it just doesn't sound that exciting. And I seem to remember thinking exactly that when I first saw the adverts for it. But as you say, one of the most successful films of that year and an absolutely engrossing, engrossing movie. It sucks you in. The characterization, um, it's, it's emotional, it's exciting, it's sad, it's uplifting. It has all sorts of raw emotions in there. And, and I guess that this is, this is film marketing after all. We talk about usually about how a film was marketed. We also have a bit of a, um, a rant about the film itself but the actual concept once you get be beyond the slightly boring heading three billboards outside of ebbing missouri the whole idea of the film is about drawing attention to a specific thing namely that the uh that uh, mildred who's the the the, uh, the main character in the film unfortunately her daughter had been raped and killed a year earlier she hires three billboards outside of the town she lives in to effectively give the police a kick up the backside to get on and solve this crime so she is the film is about marketing it's about how to draw attention to something and get people to take action and that's fantastic because that's you know not only can we talk about film marketing of the film the fact is the film has a basic thread that it's about drawing people's attention and getting them to take action you are so right and i, I never really thought of it in that way uh so thank you very much for bringing this because for me this title feels like a news headline yes do you know what i mean so you've got all these layers you know stories within stories i mean you could argue you've got three billboards almost you know representing the three acts of a typical story the setup the conflict the resolution but also if you think about this so you've got the title of a movie as you said which is almost like more a working title and then we'll come up with something really exciting down the line. But in fact, you know, it's almost like a, a statement. So it's a news headline from a newspaper. And then you've got um, the way in which, obviously, um, some of the uh, byline, you know, have summarized the film. It's also really quite intriguing because it simply says, a woman rents three billboards to call attention to her daughters and sold rape and murder. Full stop. That's it. Yeah. And you keep kind of just adding uh, elements of news headlines and, and story and what you want for the audience to go, I want to know how this um, kind of, uh, you know, what conclusion this is going to reach. How will she or will she indeed you know, get resolution by using this this method? And once you get sight and, and get to watch the trailers, I was completely sold. I, I really wanted to see this story because I, I, I've just curious about the characters and how are they going to react and deal with essentially the three billboards creating complete um, havoc in the small town of ebbing yeah and 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 the marketing of the of the film with the poster was absolute genius because it <laughs> showed the back of the billboards so you can't actually see what's on the billboards and Again, you just think, I want to know what's on those billboards. I want to be able to drive past them and turn around and come back and see what's on the other side of them. So, uh, you know, again, I keep coming back to it. I like simplicity, but that is just 
simplicity genius, isn't it? Absolute simplicity genius, creating anticipation and desire. And what I like, obviously, it's um, you know the British filmmaker uh, Martin McDonagh. I don't know if you've seen In Bruges and In Bruges. Uh, The Seven Psychopaths. So, I mean, I was already thinking, well, if it's as good as or better than what he's done so far. And I will confess, as soon as I heard that um, Francis McDormand and Woody Helson and a few others were in, um, I thought, we're going to watch and witness a story unfolding delivered by some incredible performance, screen performance. I mean, Sam Rockwell, which I've not seen for a while since um, a few other things I've seen. I mean, it was just, and each time, you know, a new character was was introduced in a story, you would just say, oh my God, him, you know, her. And and the, all those characters just kind of carried the story so, so well. Um, it, it's a delight to watch. It's a delight also to observe the cinematography. But how they explore the sense of uh, injustice, you know, indifference sometimes, racism, sexism. There's all sort of, you know, really kind of uh, hard-hitting topics being covered, but using humor so well as well. And it's, it is dialogue heavy, um, but that's not a criticism. It's good dialogue. It, it, in, in, a, in a certain respect, it, it reminds me of Tarantino-type dialogue. Some of the, the monologues that the characters go off on are actually quite long. I, I, I'm, I'm minded of the scene where, um, where Mildred effectively takes down the local priest, and, and she basically just d- dismantles his argument layer by layer by layer, and, and she's talking, and he's basically just stood there, and you can see... He's just drained of all his um, humility as she just lays into him and lays into him. And that's so well written. And and, and again, Woody Harlson, as you've said, probably not my favourite actor, I have to say, Pascal. There's quite a few roles that he's played where I've just thought, nah, I just don't like that. But in this one, again, absolutely and utterly believable character. So believable. And the letter that he leaves behind for his wife um, is is heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking, but so well written. You know, you'll 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 probably have tears, um, and the delivery is 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 spectacular. But but yeah, it's it's all about redemption and forgiveness, isn't it? It is, and that's what I like about this movie. Um, the characters are, are complex, you know, they are multi-layered, which is, again, a credit to uh, Martin McDonough and as well as, as, as the cast, whereby, you know, in the same film, you can have someone doing, uh, create, maybe creating a, a scene which is uh, deemed to be uh, bad or, you know, say, well, this character is, is evil. And then much later on, there, there's an act of kindness and you, mm. you're completely being pulled in different kind of uh, emotions, thinking, well, am I meant to dislike or lie this character? I mean, even Mildred, you know, as the, the woman who rightly saw is seeking justice, is not always going about it in the right way. So you can find yourself to be critical of her actions. Well, yeah, I mean, she puts the billboards up <laughs> and the billboards are basically saying to the police chief, Will, you know, Willoughby, who played by Woody Harlson, you know, get your act together, mate. Uh, so she's having a right go at him. And then later in the film, he pays for her to have her second month with the billboards up. 
Um, she even sets fire to the police station, doesn't she? She chucks Molotov cocktails at the police station. So you could be you could be forgiven for arguing that she's actually quite unhinged or, and and actually quite violent. And and has she gone f- too far? Despite the horrible thing that happened to her daughter, you know, is, is torching a police station with Molotov cocktails really the sort of thing that a grieving parent does? But again, later. You know, there is that moment of redemption. Uh, I, I think it's so well put together and, and multi-layered. So it may well be that some of our viewers and listeners have not seen three billboards outside um, of Ebbing. So we're not going to say much more than you must watch. You're going to really enjoy it as a bit of storytelling, cinematography, but also this element of, as Roger brought to my attention, grabbing someone's attention or, and so on. But I just wanted to, without giving too much away, the ending is interesting. And my question to you, Roger, will they, will they not? Yes, it, it's it's one of those Hitchcockian endings, isn't it? <laughs> it's the sort of ending where it could lead to a sequel, but I hope it doesn't, mm-hmm. uh, because I think this, a sequel would ruin it. Uh, but it does leave enough up in the air for you to... You can sit down and have a debate about, as you say, and we, we don't want to give away the plot, but they they leave town on a mission, a man and woman on a mission, not to demystify um, concept marketing, but to track down this potential killer. And what are they going to do if and when they find him. And, well, yeah, I mean, she's already torched a police station with Molotov cocktails. You know, one in one one respect, you could think she's going to string the guy up and, and slice off his skin layer by layer. But then maybe, because the film's full of redemption, there may be an element, a moment of forgiveness where she lets this person off if she ever finds him. Mm. So, I mean, I've never thought of it like that. Maybe that's what we're supposed to think. Is she going to exact revenge or is there going to be a moment of forgiveness coming through wow i mean for me this film is in for me feels like a fable you know because obviously ebbing is a fictional town and interestingly people living there uh, are all kind of quirky characters and usually the outsiders who come in from uh, outside of ebbing always seem to be a bit perplexed by the behavior uh, of all from the police to Mildred and, and a few others but i think it's right it's about drawing out morality it's about drawing out lessons in life it's about obviously inviting the the film goers and people watching it together to discuss it after which i think is always a, a mark of a of a great film when you end up discussing it afterwards yeah, and, and I've I've watched quite a few films recently which I would probably describe as um, scary small American town type films where the cops always seem to be bent um, and there seems to be a lot of corruption and quite a lot of violence, uh, especially within families. So it, it's this one sort of rises above that. It's not a cliche. It genuinely gets you thinking about, you know, just something happens and in this case something as simple as putting up three posters has a knock-on effect which affects so many people within the town it's it's a different film than we've you know it's not science fiction it's not fantasy it's not action um shoot them up that sort of thing it's it's a it's a more cerebral type film this pascal uh but it is definitely definitely good and for me, you know, what I like about it, it's it's almost, you know, using a safe formula, which is mm-hmm. something happens 
to yeah. a town and we observe uh, individuals reacting yes. uh, to to that sudden change to their kind of uh, quiet life or, or kind of linear life. Uh, but within that, whilst it is a safe formula, we, we have moments that where you, you're shocked and surprised. But I, I go back to this idea of, you know, it's just like a news item. Mm-hmm. Three billboards outside of ebbing. And then you suddenly observe, you know, uh, what's happening uh, whilst that is the case. Shall we try and extract some marketing lessons for the for the purpose of this podcast, Roger? Yeah, again, it, it's it just plays into that whole simplicity thing. You know, the posters showing the backs of the billboards was at once intriguing, raised expectations, was phenomenally simple but phenomenally clever. And you know that they they didn't do massive social media campaigns for these films, and, and multiple different styles of trailers and and um, you know sponsorships. It it was pretty simple, simple and, and based around those those posters and a couple of trailers here and there, wasn't it? And I think for me the the, the one element that they did very well, although they will say that the marketing execution was simple. You're right. There was one or two posters. There was definitely one what they call red band trailer where this is the uncut version. I will say both in the trailer and the movies, I don't think I've ever heard so much profanity ever yeah. in any movies uh, apart from maybe Tarantino, as you mentioned. So that yeah. red, red band trailer was quite something. Then they did a different trailer, which is actually more around Mildred and how she's dealing with a, the sense of loss and so on. And then, yeah, the usual social media um, kind of activities. But one thing they did really well, more than maybe other movies you and I have reviewed, is the use of film festival over a long period of time. Yeah, and again, sitting here, my, my own immediate reaction was, it's a dull title for a film you would have thought actually they would have had to have pulled the stops out and blitzed it as much as they possibly could across multiple platforms to get people to be interested in something that actually sounds pretty dull but they must have had a massive amount of confidence in the quality of the script and the acting and the cinematography and the direction they knew it was going to be successful and therefore they chose this less um in your face approach and and again maybe the word of mouth that came out of those film festivals was enough to to make it go big Mm, well, quite. I mean, let's not forget, you know, the, the many awards that it won. I mean, I just did a quick look uh, on um, my go-to website, like many others out there, IMDb, for uh, in preparation for this podcast. You know, mm. two hundred and twenty-three nominations across yeah. around the world, winning one hundred and thirty-two um, awards, including two Oscars. Mm-hmm. This is not, you know, a small uh, a, a small win. And it's back to this idea of, you know, trying to derive a lesson from this. Do we, all of us as content creators, do we do enough to really promote the uh, the content we produce or do we are we too quick to move on to the next execution? So are we doing enough to make sure that that video, that podcast, that the article is featured on networks of sort, you know, our version of film festival, or are we sometimes tempted to say, well, well, you know, I've done the podcast, thank you very much, next one, as opposed to squeezing more value and more exposure from that one bit of content. Oh, Pascal, I, I'm I'm guilty of this every day. I post a new episode of a podcast, 
We post an episode of this podcast, I post a video, you post a video, we do a few tweets, we do a few um, emails, and we move on to the next one. Sometimes I think, no, no, maybe we should have a sustained, absolute blitz of promoting one piece of content, you know, and just see how much more we can elevate it. Mm, no, absolutely. Anything else that comes to mind, Roger, when it comes to you know, potential marketing lessons? Um... Not really. I I just love the simplicity of this. I think this, the film sells itself. The intrigue gets you into the film, and once once you've watched the first ten minutes, you 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 know you can't you can't avoid watching the rest of it. Uh, I I actually did watch it again last week last weekend after we decided we were going to do this film today, and I, I remember enjoying it the first time. Um, I think the second time I immerse myself even more in the dialogue, and I think that this is a dialogue-rich film, and it, it, it is just so good. Every line is quotable, um, and every line can stir up the emotion and stir up sadness, happiness, redemption, whatever it might be. It, it's, it's a remarkably well-written film. Finish. You mentioned, you know, you. I'm just picking up uh, what you said. The first ten minutes, and then you're in. Yes. Have you noticed that for a number of those movies on the official YouTube channel, you can now watch for free the first ten minutes? Warner Brothers are doing it. Obviously, uh-huh. um, I can't remember the distribution company for for this one, but uh, I just suddenly remembered that it's becoming now a more common marketing tactic to literally um, showcase the first ten minutes of any films on YouTube with the calls to action to then rent, buy, or or stream. Uh, so back to a lesson that we may have just improvised you and I just now. Should we find ways to again give people that first ten minutes uh, across, you know, our, our network and not necessarily just a full version? Just a thought. Yeah, come on, United Artists. We want the first ten <laughs> minutes of No Time to Die because we're fed up with yeah. waiting for the full hundred and twenty minutes of it. Excellent. Well, Monsieur Roger Edwards, this was episode 29. It was a good one, as they say around here. Good one. Very good one. 29 episodes, Pascal. Unbelievable. And it's still as exciting and enjoyable recording these sessions as it was when we did episode number one. Likewise, likewise, my dear friend. And to our viewers and listeners, thank you again for your support. Do drop your messages. You know, they make a big, big difference at this moment in time. Until the next one, make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Pintoni and he was Roger Edwards. Bye for now. Bye.